politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Miniman standing at the ready to fight anew our life, our liberty, and our property. You got that. We have to fight anew because the original revolution is completely overturned. We've had a counter-revolution, and now we must fight for ourselves. It is a brand new week, October 17th, Monday, but I'm recording once again a day early, so this week will be my last week with a short schedule. Be out Tuesday, be back Wednesday. We have a terrific interview coming up with Robert Barnes, constitutional attorney, uh, discussing really two things, juxtaposing the Brooke Jackson trial, the fraud trial with Pfizer, and the Alex Jones trial. I want you guys to think about it because he's involved in both, and he's the main counsel with Brooke Jackson uh, doing a false claims act charge against Pfizer. Think about this. Alex Jones is being charged a billion dollars, compensatory and punitive damages, for supposedly making up the you know facts about Sandy Hook and saying it didn't happen. It's almost as if he caused the death by just denying that it happened. No freedom of speech, as repugnant as that might be. Yet, Pfizer and the government could conspire together at the highest levels to crush life, liberty, and property, kill millions of people, injure tens of millions of people, and nothing happens to them. So today we're going to discuss the irremediably broken legal system, how it's perfectly corrupt, a perfect hierarchy, double standard. And we're going to have to look elsewhere. I mean, we, it's important to fight in the courts, I think, while we can, but don't count on it. And again, the upcoming state legislative sessions, this is when we fight, and we're going to have to think of new innovative ideas. Now, our sponsor today, Upside, unlike the vaccines where it's all downside, imagine something where there is quite literally only an upside, where you can only make money and not lose money. Obviously, inflation is crazy. Gas prices are back up to their near record highs. I use the Upside app rather than just getting 1% back with your credit card. If you download the Upside app, it's U-P-S-I-D-E-D-E, whenever you go to a gas station, a grocery store, a restaurant, you just register. You say, okay, I'm going on, going to the Sunoco two miles away. Uh, the Shell gas station register, and boom, when you go in there, you, you link it to your account, and you can earn a bunch of cash back, often 40 to 60 cents per gallon. It could lop off the price based on what you wind up getting back. To get started, download the free Upside app in the App Store or Google Play. Use my promo code CONSERVATIVE to get $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more right away. And then subsequently, after you check in each time, you get that um, you know cash back through their program. Upside users are earning more than a million dollars every week for people. My wife and I use it every day almost. So download again that free Upside app and use promo code conservative to get $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more. So folks, I want you guys to think of this. One of the things I'm going to talk about with Robert in our pre-recorded interview coming up 
is just this whole notion of, oh, the private sector could discriminate. The private sector could do what they want. We now know from Alex Berenson, he's been banned again on Twitter. I don't know what the deal with the lawsuit was. But when he was banned the first time in August 2021, it, it, it turns out that there's now an email that he, he discovered where Scott Gottlieb, who is the former FDA administrator and current Pfizer board member earning $400,000 a year from them, sent an email saying to, to the to, – uh, it doesn't say who it's from, but it's someone at the NIH or HHS. This is why Tony, meaning Fauci, needs security. And it flagged Berenson's Substack article on Fauci where there's no violence or anything. He was just you know intellectually debating things he said. And four days after Gottlieb sent that email – and just 24 hours after he had a secret conference call with Twitter employees about Berenson, Twitter permanently banned Berenson. So the point is, there is no private sector. There is no excuse come January for every red state legislature and governor not to sign laws banning within the confines of the state any discrimination based on political uh, views because that is being done at the behest of government direct First Amendment violations. But of course, the courts are nowhere there for us because, of course, it's a double standard. Just how bad is it? Some of you might have seen this from last week. This is from the UK Daily Mail. PR firm that represents Pfizer and Moderna also sits on CDC's vaccine division. New York-based firm Weber Shandwick has been responsible for elevating Pfizer's profile since at least 2006, partnered with Moderna in June of this year, after it became a household name. Yet questions are being raised about conflict of interest because it emerged that the company was hired by CDC during the pandemic to boost its health communication. It was involved in PR campaigns that encouraged Americans to get vaccinated against COVID. So the point is, Vaccine makers have made tens of billions of dollars and they're working together with CDC to promote, cajole, lie, censor. And, 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 and who's fighting for us? In legislatures, in the courts? We're just going to let this go on. We have not yet had our trials and execution. By the way, Steve and I, our book, we're coming closer to the date where it's out. You could uh, pre-order at trialsandexecution.com or just type in our name on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, Rise of the Fourth Reich, confronting COVID fascism with a new Nuremberg trial so it never happens again. And by the way, it's happening again with monkeypox. There's a bunch of VAERS entries for monkeypox. That thing is horrible, that vaccine. We got to stop this. It's not even number a hundred on the GOP's to-do list for their campaign. But the point is, all the political discrimination, whether it's in banking, whether it's in medicine, whether it's in media and technology and public forums, it is all being done at the behest of the federal government. States have an obligation to interpose. And yes, we should keep up with the lawsuits, but I'm just telling you, I don't have too much hope for them. Now, there is an interesting story of all places where there is a lawsuit. Believe it or not, 
and it hasn't been dismissed in Canada against Trudeau and his administration. This guy who's the lead attorney, I'd like to get him on, Keith Wilson, he did a podcast with, um, forgetting the name of the, uh, Viva Fry, V-I-V-A-F-R-E-I, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, and he revealed, this is from FarmersForum.com, Wilson said that he cross-examined Dr. Lisa Waddell, lead epidemiologist for the Public Health Agency of Canada, who told the court that Canada's top health agency did not advise Transport Canada to require a vaccine mandate for public travel within Canada, and in fact said that the scientific evidence would not support a vaccine mandate. Not only did she recommend against it, but she said it would not be epidemiologically sound advice. And here it became the hallmark policy of the Trudeau liberals to restrict 6 million Canadians from traveling within their own country and leaving their country. And how bad was this? How bad was this? It meant parents could not fly to visit a dying son in the hospital one day to live. Viva Fry added one horrific case where a woman suffering from loneliness due to lockdowns opted for government-assisted suicide. So think about this. Her family couldn't give, give her the companionship necessary to save her life but were allowed to be with her when the state was putting her to death. That, my friends, is the Fourth Reich. That is what Western so-called former democracies stand for. That was COVID fascism. How could this go on unpunished? So at least there is a trial with that. And we'll see again from our guest where this is headed. But personally, I don't have too much faith. It's gonna, it's gonna, you know, we're, we're gonna have too much success from it. But the crazy thing is, they have killed millions of people. I mean, you know, I'm always very conservative in my estimates. I'm just telling you, every day it's turning out that the magnitude of death and injury from the shots is greater than I thought it was. And yet, in a study in JAMA of 7,300 people who received the Gynios monkeypox vaccine, 90 patients developed monkeypox after the vaccine. So monkeypox post-vaccine breakthrough risk is 1,500 times greater than general monkeypox infection. Obviously, before you adjust for demographics, because most of it is engaging in homosexual activities. So, you know, it's, it's, you know, don't, you know, take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. But the point is, you're 1,500 times more likely to get monkeypox from the monkeypox vaccine. And now it turns out there's two deaths and almost a thousand adverse events in theirs from monkeypox vaccine. And if we don't stop this by this time next year, there's going to be several more vaccines that come online. No other pro-life issue measures up to this. We need trials. We need executions. We need commissions. We need state legislative legislatures. We need we need interposition. We need grand juries. We need all of it. I'll tell you this much. I'm not going to let it go. So um, we're going to talk about the status of some of these trials. 
But first, our interview segment is sponsored today by Patriot Mobile. Look, it has never been this easy to switch away from the mobile provider cartel that is funding the censorship. Literally, T-Mobile is spying on us. Verizon is spying on us. And switch to America's only Christian conservative mobile phone provider, Patriot Mobile. Uh, they use the same cell towers as everyone else that you, you could keep your phone number. There is quite literally no excuse for keeping the cartel. Yes, I am shaming you because this is one of the few major services where we actually have an alternative, a parallel economy, and uh, they have better customer service, a U.S.-based, English-speaking line. You pretty much can't get that from any of the others. Same service plus the knowledge that your money is not going to fund evil, not going to fund Pfizer. It's going to fund the sanctity of life, religious freedom, the Second Amendment. So go to patriotmobile.com slash CR or call 972-PATRIOT. Use offer code CR to get free activation. Veterans and first responders have special discounts, so please let them know if that applies to you. Come join our movement and make the switch today at patriotmobile.com slash CR or call 972-PATRIOT. All righty, so let's get to our guest today. So, folks, one of the first guests I had on during that terrible, terrible era of COVID fascism, the actual lockdowns, was constitutional attorney Robert Barnes. When everyone was running around thinking, oh, is the new restriction saying we have to do this or this? Do we have to cover this much of our breathing hole or shut down this much? And we were debating epidemiology and different things like that. But there was a simple question. Who the heck says a government can do this for you? Just the legal aspect of this. Who's to say a government can do this to you? And and Robert Barnes was there from day one uh, representing clients to try to fight for these basic civil rights that still have not been restored. The precedents are still there. We have a lot of legislative work to do. But I did want to focus on some of the legal aspects to see where things are in the courts today. Now, there's one very important case that we talked about a lot. We had the actual plaintiff on the show herself, and that is Brooke Jackson. This possibly is the most direct way of uncovering the grand fraud that Pfizer and the FDA and other HHS agencies together committed against the American people, what I believe is the most devastatingly consequential fraud of all time, the fact that people are dropping dead, being injured left and right, and now we know they knew that during the clinical trial from day one, there was no way it wasn't happening, and indeed, Brooke Jackson was suggesting it was, and she filed a False Claims Act case against Pfizer and their subcontractors, uh, Ventavia, and that was in a federal court in Texas. And it's been dragging on forever. And I figured, okay, well, this is the one way to at least get discovery. But here we are, and we don't have much discovery. What is going on there? Where is this headed? So with us today to sort this out and more is Robert himself. Hey, Robert, it's been way too long. Thanks for joining us again today at Blaze Media. Absolutely. Glad to be here. All right, Robert, what is the state of play? Why is it taking so long that we still haven't moved on to the trial? Well, the uh, Pfizer, well, two things happened. First, that well, Brooke Jackson was the biggest whistleblower maybe in public health history. She is a longtime clinical trial uh, employee in a wide range of clinical trials for a wide range of 
uh, companies. Uh, hadn't had any problems throughout that history. She was one of the clinical trial auditors, if you will, uh, for the Pfizer clinical trials being conducted on the COVID-19 vaccines in the fall of 2020. And this was including the, uh, the critical clinical trial stage three trials that were uh, essential to Pfizer getting approval for its uh, COVID vaccine. What she witnessed in a relatively brief employment was something she had never witnessed before. Extraordinary levels of malfeasance and misconduct, extraordinary derelictions from basic duties of science and clinical testing efficacy, uh, to the degree that you could walk in to one of the clinical trial settings where these were taking place, and you could see needles sticking out of bags. You could see people's private medical information plastered on random walls. You could see people in the uh, uh, out and about in places they weren't even supposed to be. So it was that degree of a disaster and a debacle. Being shocked by this, she goes to she reports it to the Food and Drug Admin, uh, Administration, the CDC. Uh, expects them to take remedial action. Before that, she'd reported it to her employer, and they had kept failing to take remedial action. So th- she thinks she's going to the cops. Absolutely. She's like, okay, first I'll go to my boss. They'll fix this, right? I've never seen anything like this. Nope. Okay, all right, I'll go to the cops. They'll fix it. Nope. Instead, she's summarily fired right out of the blue. Uh, you know, and so then she goes, hires counsel, and fires what and and hire, uh, files what is called a key tam action a false claims act this arose after world war after the civil war uh, because there were so many vendors who scammed the um, uh, american soldiers uh, particularly union soldiers and you know with bad food bad rations bad ammunition bad weapons bad blankets you name it they just scammed them and what it became clear was that you couldn't trust the government to monitor the scam because often they were in on it or profited from the scam. So Congress came in and said, well, we're going to pass a law that allows any American to, in the name of the American people, bring a false claims act for any kind of fraud that takes place against the American taxpayer. Now, to now, be clear, uh, Robert, this is not precluded by the PREP Act. No, 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 not at all. No, there's no exceptions, no limitations on this whatsoever. Because you can't no, commit fraud, right? That's one thing. You can't commit fraud. You could, you know, have something where, you know, people get damaged by a shot and you, you could be absolved of liability, but not if you committed fraud, then you could at least be be charged with, with the fraud itself. The, the key axis is that government, ta- American taxpayers wrote a check. Yep. So the only thing that's required is a combination of two things. One, that American taxpayers wrote a check to whoever it is you're going after. And secondly, that they wrote that check based on something that the company did that was false or fraudulent. That's it, basically. So it's government taxpayer money plus fraud equals False Claims Act. So she hired a lawyer to do so. They brought their claim. Now, under American law, in order to afford the U.S. government opportunity to conduct an investigation in secret, without the target knowing that an investigation is even pending. They require that you, as a whistleblower, uh, file the claim under seal. There's always been concern that when people file these things under seal, that the government or the, uh, will uh, misuse it to hide uh, scandals from the public. So uh, Brooke Jackson does it. She files her com- uh, complaint, details extraordinary evidence that Pfizer completely failed to comply with basic rules of safety and efficacy that raise major doubts about whether their drug is even a vaccine 
least of all, whether or not it's safe and effective. And that consequently, the government wrote a couple of billion dollars worth of checks that they would not have written had Pfizer been honest about what their clinical yep. trials actually. And, and to be clear, she lodged this complaint before the vaccines were even available to the public. She she didn't wait. She went right away. It's just that it was under seal um, in, in, in the fall of 2020. That's exactly right. And she thought there's going to be immediate action. They're going to take remedy. They're going to stop this. Instead, the government keeps delaying it. Uh, and after the Biden administration comes in, they delay it for almost another year. And they keep saying, oh, you know, we need a little more time. We need a little more time. We need a little more time. We're investigating. We're investigating. Don't worry. We're investigating. Um, then all of a sudden, at the last minute, the government, uh, you know, she objects because she realizes they're about to start, start sticking this into little children and is deeply concerned with how dangerous this drug may be, how ineffective it may be, how much it may not even be a vaccine for young children. And so she wants to go public. Uh, and the only thing holding it up is the government keeping a seal on the case under the guise that they're investigating. So finally, the, uh, the, you know, she retains my counsel. She subbed out her prior lawyer. And uh, around that time, the government suddenly decides that, oh, OK, we're, we're, we're going to quit playing the game that we're investigating and we're going to uh, not intervene in the case and allow the case to go public. The case then goes public. The Pfizer immediately moves along with their co-defendants that no discovery happened at all in the case until their motion to dismiss can be brought. Their legal theory is that they would have received the money no matter what, that it didn't matter how many rules they violated. It didn't matter how many regulations they violated. It doesn't matter how dangerous the drug is. It doesn't matter how completely ineffective the drug is. It doesn't matter if the drug's not a vaccine at all that the U.S. government would have wrote them checks for billions and billions and billions of dollars, even if their entire product is a fraud. They're not wrong. Uh, <laughs> yeah. so, the, we, well, so our response, of course, is we want discovery to happen anyway. The judge initially says he's going to allow discovery, then reverses himself um, and says he's only going to allow it after all the briefing is done. Uh, so the, no, no discovery is allowed until December in this case. Uh, they file their motion to dismiss. We file our opposition. And at the last minute, the Biden administration comes in and files a pleading that says, you know what, Judge? Uh, we agree the whole case should be dismissed. Uh, so or that can only mean one of two things. Either there's been a complete reversal of position at the Justice Department or the Justice Department was lying the entire time to the courts and Brooke Jackson never did a real investigation and was misusing and abusing their power to wait, request seals of proceedings. Wait, wait a minute. I want to put this in plain English for the public. So you're saying the government uh, played the cops and robbers game. They played both sides of the, of the stick. So on the one hand, because they knew the whole important thing here is not so much the damage. She doesn't need the money, want the money, care about the money. It's about discovery. It's about finding the fraud that they knew this was a death shot. We have over 14,000 categories of maladies in theirs. Um, I mean, it, it is. it shocks the consciences. There's no way they didn't see it. We know now from a number of documents they did see it. We know from several people that were damaged during the trials that they were just written off of the trials. 
Um, so we want we want this out in the open so this never happens again, so that the technology that's now being used for, for more COVID shots, more other shots, gets halted, um, and there's public awareness to it. So so they what they don't want is that discovery. So time is is their big asset. So you're saying on the one hand, they're like, hey, you're right, we're gonna be like the prosecutor almost, like, like the government's gonna come in and we're gonna investigate to see whether we need to prosecute. Pfizer for fraud. So we got this. We got this. That made it under seal for 12 months. So they got to get the clock going. And then once they ran out the clock, then it's like, well, actually, we're going to go and join Pfizer and defend them in the motion to dismiss. Is that what happened? Uh, yeah, exactly. In other words, I mean, what, and, and the other thing they did is the key aspect of this is what if the world would have known in the fall of 2020 what Brooke Jackson had disclosed, had discovered and it was reporting to the government? Maybe there never is a vaccine release. Maybe the government never even write. Well, the government definitely doesn't write a check, not under the Trump administration for a for a dangerous, bad drug. The the whole world never has. There's no mandates. People never get this drug. Nobody ever suffers from it. So what it appears happened is the Justice Department deliberately hid and sat on uh, from the world her explosive disclosures under the guise that they were doing an investigation. When all along, their whole goal was to hide from the public how dangerous this drug is. So you had people that were part of the Justice Department in on the scam, effectively, on the American people and the people of the entire globe. Because what if the whole world would have known this back in the fall? All likelihood, government never approves purchase of this. Nobody ever gets it. Most of these people that have died or been injured from it never suffer those injuries or deaths. And so it's I suspected this was going on. But for the government to be at the very last minute to beg a court not to allow the case to go forward, not to allow discovery to take place, not to allow a jury trial to be heard in a case that could net benefit the government billions of dollars wow. tells you just how AWOL our government yeah, is. In other words, they, they knew that they would come on the side of Pfizer. Obviously, it's a, they're, they're literally one entity, but they first had to take up their role as a, as a normal you know DOJ would um to act as if they're investigating so they could allow that clock on the seal to to start and they get a full year uh administering these shots before Brooke could even talk about it um so where do things stand now what what I don't understand is this if if the judge is going to rule on a motion to dismiss and the and and Pfizer's argument is that basically look even if we committed fraud, the government allowed us to commit fraud. How does the government join their motion to dismiss? Like, what's their argument? Yeah, we we allow them to commit fraud. I mean, in essence, the government says it doesn't matter if they broke all the rules governing how clinical trials are supposed to take place. It doesn't matter if the drug was dangerous. Doesn't matter if the drug was ineffective. Doesn't matter if the drug's not even a vaccine. We would have wrote the check anyway. So implicitly, <laughs> it's a recognition. Hey, we're government. Hey, judge, government was, has been in on this from the get-go. So don't let the world know about it. Cover it up. Dismiss the case. It, it, it's like nothing. Nothing matters. I, I spoke about on last week's show the the drugs, molnupiravir and and and, uh, and Paxlovid. You know, molnupiravir from Merck literally, literally was trash. The first independent study shows no benefit on mortality and hospitalization. Nothing. Yet we paid up $1.2 billion. Doesn't matter. Paxlovid, now is a study. It causes blood clots. Doesn't matter. Nothing matters anymore. So judges don't seem to want to get involved. Could you talk a little bit about, to the extent you can, 
who this judge is in federal court in Texas, where you see this headed, what's the timeline? I mean, what the judges, uh, well, well, we should get a ruling or at least a hearing this fall. Uh, the, the judge has been uh, inconsistent. What he said is he'll make the rulings on the facts and the law. But the only time he seemed to get agitated is when uh, Brooke Jackson talked about the case publicly, talked about him publicly. Uh. That's the only time. And, and it was because she was hopeful that this judge would be impartial and not be impacted by the power of Pfizer and, and the power of Big Pharma. And oddly, he seemed to get offended by that. So that gives you a sense of, sadly, the federal judges have often been very deferential to the government in False Claims Act cases, that if the government isn't championing the case, they ignore it. Um, and that's the sad reality. Like, they tend to confuse the bureaucracy with the people. This claim is brought on behalf of the people. It's the people who got screwed. That's who the courts are supposed to be enforced. But they often say, well, the bureaucracy doesn't agree, so I shouldn't go along. I mean, it's that mindset. We have this professional managerial class that has co-opted political power in America and in large parts of the West. We're seeing the incompetence that it breeds. But the other thing it does is it creates this sort of class protecting its own kind of thing. So uh, the, the question is, a lot of judges don't have the courage to stick with the facts and the law when they're going up against both Big Pharma and the government. We'll find out whether this judge has that courage or not. So if you survive the motion to dismiss, then what happens? I mean, is that a big victory? Oh, that would be massive. Uh, it would be massive. If if we don't survive it, we take it up on appeal all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. We use it to start changing legislation in Congress. Yes. Uh, future senators like J.D. Vance and Blake Masters, uh, who have already expressed interest in uh, in this. And same with Senator Grassley from Iowa. So the uh, uh, but if we win it, it's a massive win because we get right into discovery. It's clear their desperation that no discovery occur until these motions could take place reveals that they know that they are hiding documents and information that further prove the scope and scale of what Brooke Jackson saw. Because their initial defense was, hey, Brooke was only at a few places. She couldn't have seen all the clinical trials. We now have every reason to believe that what she saw was present everywhere, and it was probably worse in some places in foreign locations where they were conducting these, like Brazil and Argentina, as some data has already come out to show. Absolutely, so, yeah. We have a whistleblower from Argentina, and uh, that was the, the one who ran that uh, clinical trial is the lead name on the original New England Journal of Medicine uh, study on Pfizer's uh, phase three clinical trial results. So. That was that was certainly very, very telling when he came on the show here. And that's the thing. It's all about information warfare. I'm curious what you think. I want to pick your brain on this. There are some patriot uh, lawyers, patriot doctors that are trying to work a grand jury angle, maybe federal level, but maybe some states where either the people could petition or where there is a sympathetic governor or attorney general, and it, it varies by state law. Is that an avenue where we can get some discovery through subpoenas? If I mean, from the federal side, the Biden Justice Department controls all access to federal grand juries. So <laughs> I would say that's probably not going to get anywhere, sadly, given how they've behaved in this case, as an example. Now, at the state level, uh, the the re revitalization of the state grand jury power to investigate these kind of corruption scandals when they're global in scale and scope, is something that uh, I think those of us critical of these aspects of what the government's done need to employ more often. 
Now, what I can tell you is that there will probably be federal court intervention at some point to stop states from doing so mm. on the grounds of federal preemption or something like that. But there needs to be, at least on the Pfizer aspect, the private a- agency aspect, if, if the uh, various, if the New York state can put Donald Trump under every kind of microscopic, macroscopic inquiry, inquisition possible, then those of us on the other side of the political aisle need to learn how to use the same tools to expose corruption uh, using our uh, connections yep. in our communities to do so. And, and, and as an, an investigative tool, you know, even if someone's exempt from the PrEP Act or whatever, um, the, the bottom line is you see Governor DeSantis using it in Florida to broadly investigate human trafficking in Florida. So that's what I wonder, at least in a place like Florida, you know, from what I'm seeing, the law should encompass some aspect of the COVID fascism uh, that that occurred, should be able to be investigated. And uh, I just, you know, figure this is an interesting angle, but certainly your lawsuit uh, working with Brooke, this is going to be something to really watch. In our remaining time, I wanted to kind of zoom out broadly with the COVID litigation. Where are we two and a half years later in terms of Jacobson, in terms of precedence. On the one hand, it does seem like, I mean, look, it's after so much information comes out that everything they did was harmful rather than helpful, judges are starting to rule with us more often. But if you look carefully, they're usually more on statutory grounds, like the president and the CDC didn't have the authority, the agencies didn't have the authority. But we're not seeing that constitutionally that you have a right to bodily autonomy, that I can't discriminate, I can't deny kidney transplants, I can't forcibly cover your mouth and nose, I can't you know, drum you out of you know, the, the, the public uh, accommodation for not getting a product, a private product, into your body. It doesn't seem like we're anywhere close to, to getting a ruling on that or a favorable one. Yeah, I mean, where there's been success is challenging government mandates, where there's been success is uh, using Title VII uh, to uh, restore your religious right to object to these kind of uh, to any mandate, uh, and you've seen some success with using the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, to limit this when it's being used against people who have a medical reason not to take it. So that's where we've seen some success, not full success, because thanks to Justice Kavanaugh, the military is allowed to partially discriminate uh, and continue to use their soldiers as people to experiment on, um, which is not part of what they signed up for. The uh, But for the most part, we've achieved success uh, on pushing back in that part of the realm, where their battle still rages is I have two suits on behalf with Robert Kennedy on behalf of Children's Health Defense, one going up to the U.S. Supreme Court, one pending in Waco, Texas, concerning whether the FDA has the power to do what they did here, period. Do they have the right to lie to the American people? Because that's what they did. They lied about whether this was even a vaccine. They lied about its safety. They lied about its efficacy. They did so in order to force, knowing others would force it on people, including young children. So uh, those cases are still pending. The FDA's argument is nobody gets to sue the FDA, that the FDA is above the law and above the courts. We're going to find out if they're right or if any court has the courage to step up and hold them accountable. The In the same, uh, I have a bunch of suits against Tyson Foods, which continued to mandate the vaccine, fired people that had been working there for more than 20 plus years because just because they didn't want to take it. Some people, I have potential suits for people who have been injured by the vaccine through the employer mandate. Those cases are still going through the court system. 
Uh, and you're right. So far, courts have not been willing to embrace while kind of dodging the issue, not willing to criticize it either for the most part. But the issue of the of the Nuremberg Code and the constitutional right yep. to bodily autonomy. What's extraordinary is our government went and hung people on the grounds that the Nuremberg Code is so universally enforceable <laughs> that even though it wasn't part of German law, we could literally execute people for violating it. And now you have American federal courts saying, oh, no, that's not enforceable. What? I mean, it's just pitiful behavior by our federal courts who have run and hid uh, as much as much they did in the election cases from this key question of con- of constitutional controversy. So we're going to continue knocking on the door until courts uh, open it up to the American people. Because this is scary. I mean, you had just uh, last week this Texas Vaccine Policy Symposium. So this is in the state of Texas. Uh, this woman gets up there and says, if the unvaccinated become a protected class, the spread of such diseases is likely to escalate. The right to individual autonomy is not absolute. I mean, these are very chilling words, but it's essentially what the government has said. And, and the irony is, look, if the vaccine works, it works. What are you worried about? I thought it works. You know, it works and doesn't at the same time. But, you know, forget about the logic of it, that that the notion that I mean, we have so many rights now that are created that are like positive rights. You know, I have a right to medicate and a right to make you accommodate me with with active uh, policy. You know, you have to build ramps for the disabled and build certain bathrooms. But yet I could force on your body, your breathing holes, something you you cannot function in society unless you walk around. You know, everyone's like, ah, that's ridiculous. That's over with. No, it's not. I mean... Even in Texas, Governor Abbott might have said he's done with it for now, but he never repudiated that it's illegal, immoral, inhumane, illogical. Um, I know a doctor that's still being punished. Uh, He might lose his medical license for not having worn a mask in 2020 in the state of Texas. Um, Is there any progress on at least the mask front? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm still fighting that case. I have a case uh, that's going up to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals on whether or not uh, my client was wrongfully discriminated against based on mask mandates at uh, hospitals and other facilities and grocery stores and you name it. So the uh, it, it's still going through the court system. And so that the, the medical Sharia law that was effectively imposed unilaterally without even a medical basis in the end, as we are now witnessing, as some of us said at the time. Uh, is has not yet been fully renounced or repudiated. And it's why we're per- continuing to pursue these cases. Some people ask me why pursue them when it's not necessarily the same scale of issue. That's when to pursue them, because we saw they're not going to intervene in the middle of the so-called no. emergency. So we, we got to keep fighting it, fighting it, fighting it until we stop this from ever happening again. Yeah, because it absolutely will happen again, and now's the time to at least examine the facts. I mean, they wouldn't even engage in fact-finding, so the government could just say something so absurd that the vaccine works so much that you better get it, because if you don't, you're affecting me, who got the vaccine, but I'm going to get it anyway, because it doesn't work, but it, it does. I mean, I mean, they were just able to say this craziness, and and the judges just threw in with them. Really does scare me. Just one thing back to the the Brooke Jackson case. Isn't there something funny going on with that U.S. attorney there arguing for the government and his relationship with the judge? Well, it's all a potential area of concern that uh, you have what what tends to happen in courts across the country 
is that the courts are off. The judges themselves are often friends, allies, aligned with, have relationships with the local U.S. attorneys. And so it's always a concern that, you know, what happens when the uh, the credibility of the local U.S. attorney is involved? Now, I personally think that, that this is about DOJ in Washington that is ordering this around. But the but it's always a concern. It's always a concern when you have it's very difficult to take on a system of power. And when you combine corporate power, government power yes. and the relationships that courts often have or that executive agencies often have with corporate power or with their brethren in the other side of the aisle, it creates uh, a doubt as to whether or not you'll get your impartial hearing. Um, though I will say that I have seen nothing in any of these cases that can still compare to the Alex Jones trial. Okay, so that's that's a good thing. I wanted to get into that. It's, you know, unfortunately I didn't have time this past week to get into this, but now's a good time. Um, am I missing something here just at its basic level that someone is being forced to cough up almost a billion dollars in punitive damages for speech? For just saying, you know, it's reprehensible. Some people might find it. Hey, I, I don't think uh, Sandy Hook happened. Okay, so those two dozen individuals are aggrieved to the point that they get a billion dollars from what you just said. Is is there anything more to it than that? It's even more insane than that. So they've created kind of an Alex Jones exception to all of the law. <laughs> so traditional First Amendment rights say that you're entitled to free speech. And that the only exception is if I say something factually false about an identified individual. Though That's the two combined components the Supreme Court outlined in uh, Sullivan versus the New York Times. And in this context, the people who sued him in Connecticut, as an example, I, I think he had never talked about hardly any of them. And to give, I'll give one illustration of one of the people that it collected is going to collect over or trying to over a hundred million dollars awarded ninety million dollars in compensatory damages and then more to come. This is an FBI lawyer. This is a guy who did didn't lose anybody in Sandy Hook. Doesn't know anybody who you know lost somebody in Sandy Hook. Uh, has no personal relationship to the deaths that occurred. He was simply one of the respondents to the scene. That's it. He admitted on the stand. Alex Jones never talked about him. Never named him. Never identified wow. him. Yet a jury awarded $90 million just for starters to him. How does that happen? Well, the way it happens is, first of all, the courts ignore the First Amendment. And they created new rules that they have never created in the history of the First Amendment, which is basically to criminalize speech, uh, to say if you make speech that it, it's been, it also it created a legally protected safe space in America. In other words, if you're in one of those safe spaces, as the courts designate it, you can sue anybody who upsets or offends you. That's basically what happened. They're saying, okay, you, Alex Jones, you talked about Sandy Hook. You know there's people that have some kind of connection to Sandy Hook that we're going to call in a safe space of Sandy Hook. They get to sue you now for you for you saying anything that offended them. That That's what the First Amendment's supposed to prohibit, but the courts just ignored it. The statute of limitations should have prohibited all these statutes, all these claims, since many of the statements are almost a decade old. They threw that out, too. You're supposed to have your right to bring motions to dismiss. They denied Jones those rights. You're supposed to be able to bring your rights to bring a motion for summary judgment. Denied Jones that right. Then Jones produced more discovery than any defendant in the history of a media case. He produced, I mean, you could see it at the trial. The plaintiff's lawyers knew exactly how much money he made at exactly which minute on exactly which day. 
So not only did they have all the broadcasts that he'd ever made concerning Sandy Hook, every statement that he'd ever made, but they had all the details of how his employment operation worked, how much money he made, how much money the business made, how much, what they were selling, who their customers were, you name it. Despite that, the judges denied Alex Jones any right to trial by jury on the merits, did not allow him to defend himself in front of the jury on whether or not he said the things that they said he said, whether he said them with a certain intentionality, whether or not he caused anybody to do anything else to the uh, plaintiffs. Uh, and he could he could not he was not allowed to say he was innocent at trial. He was not allowed to his lawyer was not even allowed to mention the name Hillary Clinton at trial, not allowed to mention anything, quote unquote, political, uh, while they allowed the plaintiffs to get up and tell their whole life story about things that had nothing to do with Alex Jones. So what you saw was a pure show trial. And their goal was to be able to use this as a future precedent against the rest of us. They can do it to Alex Jones. Yes. He's always the canary in the coal mine. They can do it to the rest of us. They did a live show trial. There was actually a HBO documentary crew in the Texas case filming the case, including the jury, live throughout the trial. Wow. And it's so chilling coinciding with the January 6th stuff where judges are blatantly jousting with defendants in middle of court on on their political views like how dare you do that or there was one case with a family where the kids were like moving away from the parents and the judge was like good decision yeah i mean you know you're not part of their views like whoa i mean where the political ideology that someone holds in itself is criminalized um and being used as pretext to hold someone pre-trial to uh you know even in in sentencing whatever it is um, the, I mean, and then now we see with all the face act stuff to, with, with the uh, pro-life activists being rounded up by the FBI for protesting or singing hymns outside of a, a an abortion clinic. I mean, this is getting real and everyone's just focused on the underlying you know thing of what Alex said about Sandy Hook. But that's not the point. They're going to start with a very sympathetic case, right? That's what they always do. Um, but then they'll say, look, if I say that January 6th was an FBI setup with people like Ray Epps, they'll say, well, that's denying things that people got injured through and they could bring suit against you for just you know doing what I do for a living, doing what you do for a living. Um, where do you see that case headed? Uh, it, it's terrifying. So hopefully somebody gets involved at the appellate level. But the problem was this Connecticut court system is the same court system that deliberately refused to enforce federal law concerning Remington that led Remington to write a $73 million check to the same group of plaintiff's lawyers concerning Sandy Hook, too. It's like it, everybody except the person who did the shooting, everybody except Big Pharma's role in what their medicines can do to people, <laughs> everything except politicians pocketing money meant for school safety. None of those people are getting blamed. Alex Jones and the gunmaker are getting blamed and writing ridiculous checks as part of the process. It's also part of an ideology and idolatry of victimhood. It says, hey, if I suffered a terrible tragedy or trauma, and again, the FBI guy, FBI guy didn't, and he's, he's going to get $100 million plus, um, the, even if I, that doesn't give me a moral right to lecture to the world. That doesn't make me morally superior. That doesn't give me the right to, uh, to pick other people's pockets. It doesn't give me the right to censor other people's speech. It doesn't give me the right to take away other people's self-defense rights. But that's what's being preached. Hey, they, some of these people suffered horrible tragedies. They're now morally superior to the rest of us. We must now all bow to them. Now, I note selectively, 
because over 90% of the people who uh, suffered a terrible tragedy at Sandy Hook have never blamed the gun company, have never blamed Alex Jones. This is a small vocal minority that want to politically weaponize their trauma to the to cause loss of rights for the rest of us. And it's part of a distorted, woke ideology that says the bigger the victim you are, the more morally righteous you are. When there's but only no certain world. victims. But but here here's what's disturbing. I, I agree with you to a point, but then that faucet is turned off when one of our people are the victims or or if it's a victim against one of their perpetrators. Like the juxtaposition of J6 to BLM. It's unbelievable. I, I just wrote an article on uh, a, a California prosecutor who was kicked out. He was forced to recuse from prosecutor. He wasn't a judge. He was a prosecutor. And, and you know, the California District Court Appellate Court uh, both ruled that he was he was biased, had to recuse himself because, you know, he runs for office as DA and he ran on law and order and, and ran against defund the police. So somehow a BLM guy who led 300 people onto a highway surround. I mean, it's one of the most terrifying things. No one in January 6th did this surrounded families, motorists, bashed in windows, um, really did harmful things. And it's not like he was prima facie going for a level of punishment, seeking a level of punishment well beyond the measure of, of the alleged crime, like in January 6th, where they're you know seeking uh, prison time for, for minor misdemeanors and things like that and pretrial holding, right? You got to recuse. Yeah, you go to January 6th, and the judges are openly biased, and that's totally fine. Do you have any faith in this legal system? Well, I mean, it's, it's definitely a problem. We're seeing the overt political partisan weaponization of our justice system, our civil justice system, our criminal justice system at the federal level, at the state level. And it's deeply disturbing. I've told people the only analogy I know of from American legal history is how the Southern courts tried to go after civil rights folks yep. in the 40s and 50s and early 60s. It's what produced Sullivan versus the New York Times. Um, which was you know it was a five million dollar verdict for a Birmingham police officer who was whining about uh, a couple of ads in the New York Times and in the absurd nature of the verdict, it partially got the Supreme Court's attention and the world's attention. Well, compare that to one billion dollars, you know. I mean, I mean, and by the way, that's just for starters. They're going to add another billion. So I mean, that that it's nuts. Uh, and clearly, we've got to call this out in the court of public opinion. We've got to. Uh, find legislative remedies and reforms. For example, the swamp shouldn't get to judge the swamp. Get rid of the District of Columbia, period. No more home rule. No more federal District of mm. Columbia. The swamp doesn't get to judge the swamp. The swamp doesn't get to judge the critics of the swamp. We've seen that in the Antifa like cases, the BLM cases, the January 6th cases, the Roger Stone case, the Steve Bannon case, the Donald Trump cases. The, the D.C. jury pool currently makes the 1950s Birmingham all-white <laughs> southern jury pool in a civil rights case look like a beacon of impartiality. It's time for uh, – and what's going to need to happen is for people to step up, continue to make the difference they can in the court of public opinion. But Republicans need to do something with the power they're about to get in the midterms so that this cannot happen again. This degree of partial, partisan, politicized weaponization of our legal system against our core constitutional rights. Very well said. Final question. What could we do maybe on a state level? You're based in Texas. Finally, after being at a session forever, they're coming back in January. What are some things you'd like to see the Texas legislature do uh, to, to maybe fix the legal structure at a state level 
um, that could help us both on medical freedom and then just this whole two-tier justice system. Well, I think we've seen some good legislative laboratory kind of work over the past two years at, for example, prohibiting vaccine mandates for employers. Uh, a lot of states pass those, more need to, and they need to expand and deepen that protection, and it needs to apply to the public educational context as well. Uh, on the issue of weaponizing the le- uh, of weaponizing the financial system, you know, the Texas passed a good law about big tech. Other states need to imitate and replicate it. The other thing is we need to do it, as PayPal revealed last week, we need to do it to the financial system. Mm. I represent a client who's from Texas who has a major bank and a major hotel chain targeting him for politically partisan purposes, trying to ruin his business because yep they don't like his politics this is happening mean, kanye west uh is is having his business banned because they don't like his politics from major banks we need to require that any financial institution operated licensed to do business in any state cannot discriminate on political grounds take the big tech law make it apply to all financial services of big companies big entities uh people that have more than a certain number of users or customers uh because that's the next uh, frontier and then continue to change our legal yes. system to limit the like we should eliminate default trials. You know, we have trial by jury back to the Magna Carta for a reason. The Alex Jones cases have proven that courts will abuse their power to circumvent that through so-called default judgments. We need to, we need to eliminate that power from the judiciary ju, uh, judicial branch, period. Every case has to go to a jury trial if somebody requests or demand it if a certain threshold is met in terms of legal risk and exposure. So those are just some of the places to start. But it's time for Republicans to start using their power rather than just talking on Twitter. Talking on Twitter and holding hearings and especially in the trifecta control like states like Texas. And and I wasn't planning on going here, um, but I, I think you're a good guy to discuss this. In a state like Texas, what do you do to break the ABA's monopoly on the legal system? Because this is a big problem that a so-called private entity could essentially – be almost a governing authority that I know a lot of people that kind of do what you do and they're under threat of losing their license to practice law by virtue of what they believe are the clients that they defend. Yeah, I mean, well, I have an old Andrew Jackson solution that, but this will probably take a little bit longer to develop consensus behind. But I think we are now seeing the problems with all these licensure regimes. <laughs> My own view is I oppose the state right to monopolize licensure. I think that you should – anybody who wants to be a doctor, anybody who wants to be a lawyer, anybody that wants to be a mechanic, anybody who wants to be a barber, anybody who wants to be an engineer yep. should be allowed to be so. And now you, you can be required to publicly disclose what your qualifications are. But let the ordinary person yes. decide that. Don't allow a small licensing board to decide that. Because when you do these wet these systems, well, Jerry Spence used to say it. The gentlemen of the bar always have a habit of only protecting the gentlemen of the bar. And what he meant by that is it's power protects power. It doesn't protect people. And so I think we're seeing the over open political uh, politicized weaponization of the entire licensure apparatus. There has to at least start with some reform there. Uh, I don't understand why judges get to control their own, who gets to practice law. That, yeah. that shouldn't judges should be the judicial branch, not the legislative and the executive. In branch. other words, shouldn't the legislature be able to make it clear that you don't need to be a member of the ABA to to stand before a Texas court? Oh, and not only that, but they should ban any form of politically motivated discrimination of any kind in the licensure process, whether that's granting a license or trying yes. to suspend it or revoke it. Um, that would stop the nonsense in terms of, I mean, you have the Texas state bar going after the attorney general 
You have the Texas State Bar going after Sidney Powell. I mean, uh, with no client complaining at all, with no civil judgment yes. at all against them. This is insanity. But that's because we got a bunch of lefty political hacks who control most of our state bars. Same with medical boards. I mean, look at all the medical boards. I mean, California is doing its bad form of re reform, trying to prohibit yeah. uh, publicly. But Texas is doing it, too. Yeah, it, it's happened in every single state. Doctors have faced blowback from medical boards for simply speaking the truth about what's been taking place in the COVID pandemic context, whether it's masks, whether it's vaccines, whether it's other things, whether it's other treatment options, et cetera. So we've got, we've now seen, if you give too much power to the judicial branch, if you give too much power to these licensing branches, what happens with that power? It gets abused. So we need to take that power away from them. No, absolutely. And, and, and that's what we're seeing here that when it comes to this so-called quasi-private sector that really is at the behest of government, I have one litmus test. What if they said we're banning homosexuals? Okay, would that fly? Would that fly? Oh, I'm a private entity. I couldn't. No. So whatever would be applied to that will apply to us as well. If we're going to have anti-discrimination laws in America, which we have them up the wazoo when it suits them, believe me, we're going to apply it evenly. And yeah, I mean, these government, you know, agency, it's ridiculous. If someone wants to use someone as a doctor, use someone as a lawyer, that's their thing. Um, you know, and and because uh, right now you have really very able lawyers that are, I mean, it's terrifying the amount of people who can't get lawyers. Um, the, the business owners under COVID couldn't find them, obviously the J6ers. And then meanwhile, the worst murderers around, you know, they have no problem because they're a protected class two-tier justice system. Um, thanks so much for this presentation. We covered a lot of ground. Thanks for your generous time. Thanks for being bold. And we should do this more often. Absolutely. Take care. God bless. So anyway, that was Robert Barnes, constitutional attorney from Texas. Really, in my mind, represents the new right, what the right should have always been, outside-the-box thinker, always skating to where the puck is headed, willing to often defend unpopular people, but very important causes. And now it's going to become popular. The Alex Jones stuff is just absolutely crazy. It is so chilling um, how they could use speech to literally kill people, coerce people to get a death shot. And then, you know, someone just talks about something ex post facto. It's like, it's like let's say someone just says World War II never happened. World War I never happened. The Holocaust never happened. You might think it's repugnant, but it doesn't do anything and certainly nothing actionable in a criminal way. Um, and, and here these guys were able to kill people. Uh, so he, he's really all on the ball. Lots of good ideas legislatively, uh, American Bar Association, anti-discrimination stuff. Um, I really like you know where he's headed. And um, he is someone I really, really do admire. By the way, you could follow him at Barnes underscore law on Twitter. I have no idea how he hasn't been kicked off yet. Um, but speaking of being kicked off, I just want to end with this today. You have to understand when you start seeing these trends in media, these headlines, these random reports, just understand it's not like Oh, the 32-year-old, 27-year-old CNN reporter uh, all of a sudden had an epiphany one day or it even assuages their liberal conscience to, to write that story. It's called in like an airstrike. They pitch stories. Pharma and the masters of the universe, the powers that be, pitch the stories. 
So just like you started to see this random assortment of stories on a sudden adult death syndrome and you know young people need to watch out there's an increase in heart attacks so that once they can no longer deny it because it's clear people are dropping dead people are like oh, oh well, well, well we know about that that's that's from this so they automatically their brains don't go to the culprit which is the death shots the pfizer shots the moderna shots that's it's an intellectual media grooming so they're now doing it with cancer they know that there's such a bubble of cancer exploding that they absolutely cannot hide it anymore. So CNN had this article over the weekend, a global epidemic of cancer among people younger than 50 could be emerging. Yana Ross, Don Ross Nunez was 43 when she told her husband she could feel something like a bubble on her abdomen. An ultrasound scan found spots on her liver, which led to blood tests, colonoscopy. It was a tumor. And they go on to say a new review of cancer registry records from 44 countries found that the incidence of early onset cancers is rising rapidly for colorectal and 13 other types of cancers, many of which affect the digestive system and the increase is happening across many middle and high income nations. <laughs> middle and high income nations. It's funny. Which nations didn't get the shots much? Yeah, it's the low income ones. So, and, and they talk about red meat is a factor obesity, inactivity, and they have all this stuff. So people will be like, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's what, that's what it is. We know exactly what it is. There has never been a fraud perpetrated on humanity that has led to this amount of death and misery, and this is just the down payment. My promise to you is I will not relent. I will not give up. I'm going to be prepared for the legislative sessions. We're going to fight this. We're going to fight other issues. This is why I need your support to send this show to every one of your friends and relatives. Please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. I will be out Tuesday, uh, but I'll be back Wednesday, same time, same place. Uh, I won't be checking email, but you know, later in the week, you could email me, Daniel Horowitz at startmail.com. Till Wednesday, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.